I'm getting <coughs> close to the end of the chapter about the nuns' training, and this section is called Dhamma Teachings. The Dhamma Teachings Lumpur gave to the Mechis were a little different in substance from those that he gave to the monks. Although he might emphasize right speech and various community values a little more at the beginning of talks to the Mechis, the essence of the instruction he gave was the same. The more profound teachings were given freely. In fact, monks who accompanied Lung Po when he went to teach the Mechis would say that the talks he gave on these occasions were amongst the best that they'd ever heard. A passage in which Lung Po related to the nuns, one of his favorite stories, gives a flavor of these talks. This is Lung Po speaking. One of the supreme patriarchs went on a trip to China where he was presented with a beautiful teacup. The patriarch had never seen anything so beautiful. He started thinking about how he'd show off his gift to all his lay supporters when he got back to Thailand. But as soon as he took the cup into his hands, he started to suffer. <gasps> Where shall I put it down? Where shall I keep it? He became afraid of breaking the cup. Once the teacup was in his shoulder bag, he constantly reminded his attendant, be careful with that shoulder bag. The teacup is fragile, be careful. It was nothing but suffering for him. The patriarch had been having a good time before that. The suffering began as soon as he received the teacup. That's when it became heavy. Sitting on the plane back to Thailand, he would fret whenever the novice went near the shoulder bag. Be careful, it's fragile. If a layperson came close, it was, be careful with that shoulder bag. He suffered all the way back to Thailand because he thought that the teacup belonged to him. The suffering came with the attachment. One day, much later, back in his monastery, a novice picked up the cup to have a look at it. The cup slipped through his hands and broke. The supreme patriarch exclaimed with joy, At last! I've been suffering over that cup for years. <laughs> it's the same with the five aggregates, the khandas. They're heavy. Throw them away. Throw away form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. Don't take any of them as self or as belonging to self. They're merely form merely feelings, merely perceptions, merely mental formations, and merely consciousness. That's all. Don't grasp onto any of them. Seeing their true nature is liberation. <coughs> We've been attached to conventional realities, but when we see the five aggregates for what they are, then everything flips over, and there is freedom from the conventions. When we put down the burden of the five aggregates, we feel lightness. This is what I'd like you all to understand. Like the monks, the Mechis talked amongst themselves of how Lung Po always seemed to address exactly the issues that they were facing in their practice and wanted to ask him about. As Mechi Bunyu recalled, when he taught the Dhamma, it was clear to them that he genuinely believed in their capacity to liberate themselves from suffering and he wanted to help them in every way that he could. This is Mechi Bunyu speaking. He taught us to abandon craving, not to attach to an idea of self, to see impermanence. We practiced as he recommended, and we saw the truth of what he taught. I determined to follow his teachings, and saw that they were the path to liberation from suffering. He taught us not to be deluded by the physical body, to let go, to abandon attachment, to put things down. I was inspired by his teachings. I fully accepted them and practiced accordingly, and had no thoughts of returning to the world. When he came to give a talk, if there were a lot of newly ordained Mechis present, He'd speak on a basic level, about not arguing or contending, knowing the meaning of the precepts. 
On the, on the intermediary level, he'd talk about training to abandon greed, hatred and delusion, attachment to views and conceit, how to practice once our precepts were purely kept. On the highest level, he'd talk about what you'd see and what you'd experience when you practiced. He'd talk about the purpose of becoming a nun, about the highest goal of a monastic's life. He would talk about Nibbana and Anatta, and there being nothing worth attaching to. Sometimes he might ask an older Mechi, do you know what the state of your mind will be at the point of death? He taught us to know the knowing sorry, he taught us to know the knowing in the knowing. Not the knowing of heat and cold, of pleasure and pain of day and night, but the knowing in the knowing. Well, the, um, the theme of the broken cup um, uh, and uh, or the cu contemplating a cup as being already broken was an extremely common um, motif for, for Lumpur's uh, in Lumpur's teaching. As has uh, been said many times before, he tended to emphasize the reflections on Anicca, to develop the Anicca Sanya, the, the um, the reflection on uncertainty, uh, on the, the everything being continually in, uh, in a state of change and, and uncertain what things would change into. And uh, that uh, skill of looking at a cup as being already broken, then that would uh, he would extend that like to the rest of the five khandhas, to looking at, at our body as already dead, looking at this already as an ex-monastery, looking at our, um, uh, our state of health as being something that is a... Um, something that is fragile and in, in a state of change because the mind keeps creating false senses of, of permanence and that the Anicca Sanya, when it's, uh, say, when it's uh, appreciated from a, an attitude of self-view, then it's frightening. You know, you're, you make uh, a cause for anxiety. Ooh, what's going to happen? Am I, uh, is my health going to get worse? Or uh, is this, is this going to be an ex-monastery? What's he talking about? Are they going to close the place down? Or? The uh, um, the self view element is always going to be a cause for fear. Fear depends on the on the feeling of self, I and me and mine. When uh, self view is let go of, when there's no conceit uh, and no self view, no sakayaditi, no self view, no mana, no conceit, then there's no person there to be afraid. There's no thing that can be damaged by any any of the changes that go on. That which knows changing isn't changing that which uh, that which is aware of the body um, isn't isn't the body doesn't have form that which knows form is formless that which knows the person isn't a person and so that this uh, uh, continual reflection that he gives into in, uh, impermanence and the seeing that the, the the cup the glass is already broken it can seem like a very simple thing. oh yeah it's a good idea but <laughs> If we apply that and bring that into being moment by moment, then it's ex ex extraordinarily liberating. Uh, when I was living in the States, one of the, the, the founders of the Buddhist group in the San Francisco Bay Area was a quadriplegic uh, guy. He'd been uh, run over by a jeep when he was a, he, he was a, he was a rock climber. He'd just come down um, a, a climb from Half Dome Peak in Yosemite, which is about a 3,000 vertical cliff. 2,000 foot vertical cliff and he just finished that climb and was sleeping in the field um, below the below Half Dome Peak and uh, somebody who shouldn't have been driving there was driving a jeep through the grass and, and drove over him broke his back and so his, his spine was broken and he was, he was in hospital for about a year and then by the time he got out of hospital um, he had some mobility in part of his arms but uh, his legs were completely paralyzed so he was and he had 
uh, what he had um, biceps but no tri uh, tri uh, yeah biceps but no, but no triceps so he could uh, had limited movement in his in his arms so anyway he was one of the members of the uh, the Buddhist group that invited Lumpur Sumedha to start a monastery in in California and uh, uh, he uh, said amongst the the uh, the wheelchair um, community that the people who are uh, not in chairs uh, the um, uh, the folks like us, he said, are known as tabs, T-A-Bs, temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> Which I thought was a very, a very skillful way of referring to it. It's a kind of good, uh, uh, a good reflection that, yeah, well, that uh, okay, that he was been in a chair since he was 19, but um, uh, you know the uh, the conceit or, or the presumption of being able to walk around and have a uh, a sense of independence and mobility. This is a, a temporary condition, like every other condition. It can only last for a certain amount of time. The um, the quality uh, that uh, she's talking about at the end. He taught us to know the knowing in the knowing, so that that uh, is. Um, they, we use the word English in English. The the word knowing in the very uh, broad spectrum of ways. So mostly we use it to refer to knowing about, like um, knowing the day of the week. You know, so today is Thursday, or, or knowing that um, knowing about Buddhism, or you know, knowing a fact, having some some information. So that would be uh, as uh, as she puts it, not the knowing of heat and cold, so not the knowing about things, but the quality of awareness itself. And so that is very much the the sort of heart uh, uh, core of the Dhamma teachings of the forest tradition, particularly in Thailand, that um, that quality of, uh, of the knowing, of what we, you call vijja, or uh, awareness, um, awakened awareness, and that that's a very um, uh, say a common theme, and particularly when Lumpur Chao was talking about taking refuge in the Buddha, the, uh, he would very regularly uh, stress the fact that the, the Buddha that is the, the refuge is that very quality of awakened awareness in the uh, in the phrase the, the sort of um, in the chanting in the stylized phraseology of speaking about the buddha then uh, say the way the buddha is described in, in the chanting is puru buddha and pubokban so puru uh, is means the one who knows pu from um, purisa from a person ru is the the verb to know so puru uh, the Buddha is Puru, the one who knows. And so Lumpucha and uh, many of the other uh, Ajans out of the forest tra tradition in Thailand would emphasize that that Puru is really that quality uh, of, uh, of awareness of our own heart so that we look to the Buddha as uh, a refuge, as a teacher, as uh, the founder of this spiritual tradition, as a, a great spiritual mentor and uh, amazingly uh, gifted and wise uh, teacher of extraordinary wisdom and kindness but the Buddha as Lumpucha would often say that the memory of the Buddha or the idea of the Buddha is not a refuge, the statue is not a refuge what's a refuge is a, a genuine safe place it's an actual place of, uh, of security that's why we called it a, a refuge it's a safe place and he would em emphasize that the real safe place is that quality of awareness so in the, the heart embodies that quality of knowing, that puru or or um, as Ajahn Jayasaro tends to tra translate that nowadays um, more, uh, in a way more accurately, as Tartru, the, the element, the Datu of, uh, of awareness, the uh, 
heart rule, the uh, the element of knowing, the element of awareness, that uh, then the, the the mind can be aware of comfort or discomfort, pleasure or pain, gain or loss, praise or criticism. That uh, taking refuge, the heart taking refuge in that quality of of uh, heart rule, the element of knowing, then uh, there is a quality of of safety, of security, of um, of true stability uh, 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 is uh, is realized in that. So that uh, these kind of teachings that the Lumpur would give to the nuns community as well as to the monks community and to the lay, uh, the lay community as well. He was very just like the Buddha. He had a an open-handed approach. He wasn't sort of just teaching the high, uh, highest dhammas to a select circle, but he would put these teachings out for for uh, for everybody. And then understanding that there were those who could understand and would uh, make use of it, and others that it would just you know, go go uh, straight over their heads. But uh, he would he would put it out there and to um, to let people they reflect and consider and to come to their own understanding of, of these teachings in, in due course. Any questions, thoughts? Yes? Going back to the conventional level and some of the discussion yesterday, um, thinking about you know, that, the question about uh, dual communities, one of the challenges faced by dual communities that you didn't mention before is the challenge of the hierarchy. Because, I mean, at a, the most fundamental level, we're at the intersection of three different cultures. The Pali, you know, the, the Pali-Binia culture, the Thai, you know, the Thai forest tradition, and modern Western culture. And all three of them have different ideas about the relationship between men and women. And they're, in a way, there's no way to solve the problem. You can't create a system that would satisfy all three. So in a way, it's, it's permanently uncomfortable. That's not necessarily... <laughs> Nothing is permanent, General. Well, actually, no, you're right. Yeah, eventually it will change. But I was curious because I see... What I, I perceive you doing lots of skillful things in you know, working with the hierarchy as, you know, as we have it here, where... And I was just curious if you had the reflections on that. You know what the you know what the potential challenges are to that. You know, basically the at least as far as it's been so far, the uh, you know the monks always going first and the women going second. And you you definitely you make where where it will allow where the traditions will allow it, like chanting. Mm -hmm. There is nothing in the Vinaya that says that the nuns can't lead chanting. So you, so we do that, mm -hmm. but there are other places where it seems clearer, and um, we can't. And so I'm curious if you have thoughts about that or how you've worked with it. Because again, I see my perception is you're you're handling it very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not immune to flattery. Uh, I try to be, but uh, it's uh, an ongoing. Um, uh, uh, dance really, you know. You, you just uh, if you try to figure it out or do it by calculation, then you just create a lot of suffering, and it is apparently permanent suffering. <laughs> but uh, it's your life happens moment by moment, and so that you have basic principles um, that you're you're working with, and just like it's said over and over again that um, that uh, uh, you know, the, whether you happen to be a, a, a woman or a man, your Lumpur Lumpur would 
give teachings freely to uh, to anybody who is interested in Dhamma, just as when the, you know, the Buddha um, was open-handed in his teaching. And um, so you're working, I mean, but it's also, you're very conscious of, of straddling these different worlds um, and that different protocols uh, apply at different times, often moment by moment, you know, talking with a, with a group of Western, you know, a couple of Western people and then some Thai people and then uh, the uh, speaking from the uh, the the, uh, the basis of the suttas and so on, so that there's um, you're sort of uh, adopting different conventions in different forms, kind of moment by moment. It's rather like um, sometimes you're talking in in English and Thai and kind of going back and forth between you know, languages. Um, the uh, <clears throat> and so being understanding that everyone's understanding most of what's being said, and you kind of just pop back and forth and using mixtures of language and terms within any one individual sentence. So the, um, uh, yeah, I, for myself, I try to, to work from a basic level of, of humanity and that we are, we are uh, we're not nuns and monks and novices, lay people uh, as identities, but these are conventions. Uh, and again, this is a sort of thing that Lumpur Cha would highlight over and over and over again. He would sit up on the Dhamma seat and say, there are no monks here, there are no nuns here, there are no women, there are no men. These are just sankharas, these are just empty formations. And, and absolutely mean it. You know, that, that's what, in that moment, that's what he's, he's saying absolutely truly, that we are women and men by convention. We are monks and nuns, lay people by convention. That these are, we respect the conventions and we, we uh, operate according to the, the samuti sacha, the, the conventional truths of, and, and forms, the mores of society, but we don't take these things as an identity. So that if you, um, uh, uh, you know, being a nun or a monk isn't a career move, it's not like, <laughs> not something that you take on as a, uh, uh, as a sort of personality, a, a, a choice of career or as an identity, but it's a skillful means, and I feel one of the great powers that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato, Lumpur Cha had in their in, in, you know, incredibly abundant and skillful teaching is to continually uh, uh, say show how their uh, a, a faithfulness to the tradition and the forms and the, the structures of Theravada Buddhism and Thai custom and convention, um, uh, and that can be meshed with an understanding that these are just conventions. These are these are just sankharas. There is no absolute core there. And the, the way they 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 operated, the way they they've taught and and conveyed the the teaching and the practice, I feel is extraordinarily skillful. That's why you know we have so many of us have been able to appreciate and, and benefit from that. But you you can't do it by by formula. So I feel you have to you ha have to work from a, a basis of of humanity, and then you work with the conventions the best you can, moment by moment. And so, um, uh, the uh, say when we we um, one of the, one of the things that comes up quite frequently is say when people visit or when Western groups, uh, Western people come to stay here, or we have school groups uh, that come to visit. They say, why, why do the monks go and, you know, when we go to to the meal time? You know, we, you've received a few school groups here but how come all the monks go first and how come the nuns go afterwards and because uh, for the school kids it's be like all the, the 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 male teachers of the school go first at the lunch queue and then all the women go afterwards well that's not going to work <laughs> in a in a school you know it'd be ridiculous absurd but uh, so, oh, so it's like it's really striking to them 
our conventions are such that the senior people go first and the junior people go after, so that we come to a door and I would go through the door before you, because um, senior in years to you. These are just the conventions. So part of it, you work with it um, in, the, in the best way that, that you can. So, uh, say for example, um, one of the advantages of, of meeting in the temple on the, the, the weekend is that uh, when it's time to, to leave after the blessing's been given, then we all bow at the same time. We all, all the monastics leave together. So at least on Saturday and Sunday, there's the sanya of all of the, the nuns and monks going at the same time. One of the, the aspects of the redesign of the, of the, the sala, because this is an impermanent building, and we do aim to take it down in about a year's time, yeah, give or take, <laughs> that uh, when we build a new sala, then uh, the aim, well, my, my, um, my um, uh, ardently, um, uh, say, supported, or not say, uh, my, my ardently wished for suggestion is we have two serveries, so that when we have the, uh, we'll gather in here, the, 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 the whole configuration of the sala will be different. We'll probably have the kitchen down at this end, the building and not have a service yard out the back at all have a whole different entry exit system this isn't a discussion about <laughs> architecture this evening so uh, just that's the just for example and then have the the serveries plural where the kitchen is and have two serveries so that then um, the shrine would be kind of where the 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 servery is now and so we have the, the nuns on one side the monks on the other side after we've given the blessing to the uh, people uh, before the, the meal time, then we get up and then the nuns go through one door, the monks go through another door, have two sets of serveries behind the wall, and then, we, and then up each up our own individual staircase, the nuns up their staircase, the monks up our staircase, and then have two individual eating areas up on the second story. So, yeah, little by little, then you sort of make, make changes to bring things together. In terms of, of community um, structures and yeah, who's on the English Sangha Trust for, for in the lay, on for lay community, then I uh, personally I support a total gender equality. Whoever's got the ability and the capacity, the interest, whether they happen to be female or male, is totally beside the point yeah, to me. Uh, in terms of administering the, the, the monastery and who's uh, leading retreats or and who's taking responsibility for various practical tasks, then it's, in, insofar as it can be shared, it's, a, it's down to individual capacity. And uh, Obviously, you know, the women look after the women's area, the men look after the men's area, but in terms of, say, the decision-making, we have a Amaravati steering committee that meets every three weeks or so, and it's... Uh, it's just it's a completely level field so that the, there's a group of senior nuns come a couple of senior monks myself and, and we discuss the do the decision making for the monastery as a as an equal group there's no there's no hierarchy there's no seniority in that in that respect it's like what are people's opinions and I feel it also that reflects very much the way that Lumpur Cha operated that he was a powerful figure and very much in charge of things but also he would call upon other people's opinions and, and, and take people's advice. And so I try to personally do that as sincerely as possible. So if, if someone happens to be a, a junior monk or a junior nun uh, you know, and, or just on the eight precepts and they're part of the community, if they've got a particular role, they're, 
they're looking after you know, Anna Garikar who's got a particular responsibility in the kitchen and they come and say oh well we need to do this this and this I think we should change it in this way you know I'll, I'll listen to that and respect their, their point of view because the fact they're on eight precepts or they're, they're uh, newly in the community is kind of beside the point that's their job they've been asked to do that they, uh, they've taken that um, that role on so why shouldn't I <laughs> respect them and, and, and listen to what they've got to say so in that respect, uh, well, gender is non is a um, is a, a non-issue in terms of the tasks that we have and the responsibilities and 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 trying to hold that in my own mind, and that hopefully that communicates itself through the through the monastery. And quite, I mean, I've been here about nearly ten years now this time around, and um, I can only think of one comment in ten years made by. I, can, I won't mention any names, but one, one comment that was of a sexist nature that uh, one of the monks mentioned, uh, said to me that I felt that I had to sort of say, you know, that you, uh, that's out, you're out of order there. I've only had to, to say that once, which is kind of amazing, 10 years. I don't know what other people have been receiving. <laughs> but but uh, that's, uh, to me, that's very encouraging uh, and a kind of extraordinary in, the, in any sort of living situation. But I feel... You know, it's a, an ongoing, um, uh, an ongoing dance. I also, I, I, I don't know if uh, I mentioned it in the, this group, but a, a week or two ago, someone was uh, asking me about this. Um, I think it was at breakfast time, and uh, and I was saying, well, there was this uh, time in, in the San Francisco Zen Center when Suzuki Roshi was still alive, and a, a group of his uh, Western uh, Zen students came to him and they said, oh, Roshi, we, we've, got a, we've got a list of suggestions. We think we've got some improvements we'd like to make to the Zen Center. We think that things could be kind of brought more into line with their, you know, American life. You know, that we're, you know, you know, you've come over from Japan to bring Dharma to America, and so we've got a few suggestions. And he can, there were, um, they gave him their, their list of things that could be done much, much better. And he said, oh, this is good, yeah. I, I agree with all of these changes. Now, Really? Yeah, all of them? Yeah, I think these are all good. These are very good. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, so, yeah, I think we should implement these. So, wow, that was easy. Like, you know, because they, they'd been assuming it was going to be quite a long, quite a workout to, to get Roshi to, to uh, go along with any of it. He said, but um, uh, it might be good to just not be too, too, in too much of a hurry. Uh, so what do you mean by that, Roshi? He said, well, you know, it might be sensible to take a while to... I think these all should be implemented, but it might, you know, it might, might be sensible not, not to rush things and, and um, just to, to let things be uh, sort of introduced in an, in an organic way and then, you know, so that they can become part of our, our, way, our way of doing things and, our, and our, our custom and our practice over time. And um, so that, you know, over a number of years, then that, that they... It sort of it takes all takes shape in an, in, an, in an organic way. And they said, a number of years. Um, when, when you say a number of years, Roshi, what what kind of a number are you thinking of? Oh, three or four hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think he was absolutely he was being absolutely. I don't think he was joking. He was, he was quite. Yeah. So I, I also. Um, I think you know the faster you hurry, the slower you go. I think it's uh, it's important to, to think generationally, to think in 
And uh, our current time, it tends to have shorter and shorter and shorter attention spans so that there's greatest uh, quality of urgency. But uh, I do think it's important to... To not to not push, as in you know, don't push. Just use the weight of your own body. Just gently lean into, and then as the changes and the opportunities for for bringing things uh, uh, around into a better, more skillful, more appropriate way as those those come up, then you 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 lean into those choices, and and um, then things can evolve in a good way. So that's why my. Uh, not very short thesis on the subject. <laughs> so the last section in this chapter is called The Duty of a Samana. On one occasion, while addressing the Mechis, Lumpur returned, an old, returned to an old and potent theme, how to make the most of monastic life, how to live as a true Samana. Progress in Dhamma began with the cultivation of a sense of urgency. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. That's what it says in the books. What are you doing right now? What does it mean to you to be a Mechi? If you say that you've come to abandon defilements, then do you know what the defilements are? Can you recognize the unwholesome qualities in your mind? Are you abandoning defilements? Are you resisting them? What are you thinking right now? What are you doing? Are you thinking wisely or foolishly? Are you thinking jealous thoughts, angry ones? Is there desire in your mind? Examine the present moment. Lumpo said that now they had left the lay life, the Buddha was asking them questions. He was asking, are you conducting yourself like a samana yet? Are you speaking like a samana? Do you eat like a samana? He warned them against living heedlessly. Living too comfortably was an obstacle to practice. He said that the way of the summoner is to put constant effort into abandoning greed, hatred and delusion. It's through that effort that the summoner earned the respect and support of lay Buddhists. But if lay Buddhists did praise their practice, they should treat those words of praise with caution. If they were not true, then after hearing those words of unearned praise, they should put forth the effort to become worthy of them. Lumpur said that the reason people don't let go of defilements is that they haven't seen the suffering inherent in them and so are reluctant to abandon their attachment. Greed, hatred and delusion arise in our minds because of our wayward thinking. A person with wrong view will not find peace even in the most conducive environment. Wrong views always bring suffering in their wake. Only right view leads to peace. Peaceful states of mind develop in one holding in one holding wrong views, will never lead to wisdom. Only the calm informed by right view can support insight into the way things are. He stressed that it is right view that enables a summoner to know how to adapt, to know how to live in a large community, how to live in a small community, how to live alone. When right view has been developed, living in a large community feels no different from living alone. The harmony of the group is a vital, supportive factor for practice. Chanting together, meditating together, working together, all foster the harmony of the group. When other Mechis act poorly, he said, then be aware that this is because their Dhamma practice is not yet strong enough to overcome their defilements. Some have deeply ingrained bad habits. They've never created the conditions for wisdom and letting go in the past. Make allowances for them. And then this is Lumpur speaking. 
You've still got defilements. You've still got craving. So, you try. You increase the number of practices you've taken on. You examine your body, speech and mind every day. Where are the shortcomings? You extend the bits that are too short. Whatever's too long, you cut it off. Well, that um, comment that he, uh, that he uh, uh, is quoted as saying, that, uh, the reason that people don't let go of defilements is that they haven't seen the suffering inherent in them, so they're reluctant to abandon their attachment. So that was a very, very frequent uh, comment of Lumpur's. You know. so, uh, it's only when you know the pain of attachment is, uh, is when you'll let go. It's, uh, unfortunately, it's usually pain that teaches. <laughs> uh, that's the, how we, we uh, tend to, to learn most, uh, most readily. And that um, ha- sometimes the voice of reason saying, you know, this is really stupid. <laughs> Look, think of all the disadvantages of this, that the, the voice of reason only has a, a little bit of an impact. But it's when, as he would say, like taking hold of a, of a red-hot iron ball. Ow! <laughs> the, ow! When you, you feel the pain of attachment, that's when you let go. That's when the, there's a, a, a dropping of that particular uh, attachment, the whatever the mind is grasping. So I, that's a simple statement, but it's, uh, I found that extremely useful uh, over the years. You know, until you know the pain of attachment, then you, you won't let go. And so in, uh, uh, in developing the practice, that uh, in a way clearly acknowledging the, the relationship of cause and effect. If there is suffering going on, that you find yourself, uh, you know, say, uh, angry about something, or afraid of something, or regretting something, or nostalgic, or hopeful, or jealous, or, uh, or uh, fearful of, of uh, say, an illness, or an injury, or something, the, uh, regardless of what the, the object of attachment might be, it's uh, when the, the, the mind is able to recognize, oh, there's, there's suffering now because the mind is attached to, that, attached to that, that thing, that the way it relates to that physical pain, or the way that it relates to that, uh, that, um, re- that feeling of, of regret. Remembering that event that happened in the past, now that there's a feeling of regret. Uh, remembering that thing that was precious that uh, I don't have anymore, now there's a feeling of loss. Um, because of having uh, had a, a, um, uh, a heedless conversation with someone, now there's this feeling of, of regret. Oh, I, I spoke too casually, I was just um, too outgoing. So simply seeing the cause and the effect. Oh, this is the cause, this is the effect. That's what happened. So, so now, ow! <laughs> and over and over again, I, I emphasize that the, this is one of the places where the thinking mind, intelligence, gets in the way at this point. Because the, the thinking mind can come up with all sorts of good reasons of why uh, we did what we did or, what, or the way that things happened. Or it can come up with um, all kinds of, of criticisms. Or you're a terrible person because of this, this, this and this. You know, I shouldn't uh, be allowed to be in this monastery. I, 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 you know, I don't deserve to be a monk. I shouldn't be eating the alms food of the, the lay people offer. And creating a lot of, of complica- complication and self-view. Uh, self-view around unskillful action and its result. If it, we keep it extremely simple and just say, well, trim away, put all of the story-making, <laughs> the, all the shoulds and shouldn'ts aside, this is what happened, this greedy impulse was followed, 
now there is this feeling of regret and indigestion. <laughs> so, so that's the cause, this is the effect. Ow! That's it. Just the, the, as little commentary as possible. Um, uh, I had this precious thing, like the, the, the beautiful cup, because that was my precious thing, then um, now the, the result of, of having had that precious thing, now that it's broken, is this feeling of, oh, that was my favorite cup. And that simplicity of here's the cause, here's the effect, and letting that be as wordless as possible, that is, a, I find, the most helpful approach. I'm not putting down the, the usefulness of the thinking mind. Our capacity to think and remember and imagine, to plan, is extraordinarily useful. But in this instance, um, it often gets in the way. It complicates things. And also, particularly, it feeds self-view. That sense of, I used to, I had, I have lost, I, I, I shouldn't... Uh, they, uh, they are like this, uh, he is like that, uh, she is this way, he is that way, I, uh, I should, I shouldn't, I want to, I have to. Uh, all of that eye-making and mind-making, ahankara and mamankara, it complicates, it's a, it's a um, stressing and complicating influence. And as the Buddha said, don't complicate the uncomplicated. Apapanchang papancheti, in the, the Pali. <laughs> Apapanchang papancheti, don't complicate the uncomplicated. And the more that we can genuinely see this is the cause, this is the effect, and just let that pain be felt without adding anything to it, then that really supports the quality of hiriotapa, that moral sensitivity. You don't have to create a lot of self-criticism, you don't have to make sort of ardent aspirations, I'll never do that again, as long as I live, I'll never, ever, ever have that thought ever again, you know, I'll determine, you know, my, my bones can turn to dust, my blood will dry up, and I'll never have another angry thought. You know, it's a noble aspiration, but <laughs> it's uh, often making that kind of aspiration or that determination is, is asking too much. And as uh, Don Paul would say, don't make Superman or Wonder Woman uh, determinations when you're not Wonder Woman or Superman. You know, that to minimize the thinking around it, just to see cause and effect. Similarly, when things go well, or quote-unquote, and so that uh, you do something that is kind, uh, you have a, a meditation period and the mind is very peaceful and bright, and, and there's a lot of insight arising, uh, in a sense, uh, it's equally important to not grasp that or create a lot of of complication around that, but rather, oh, you know, th that was a, a, a meditation period was uh, came together in this way, and this is the result. Not claiming any kind of achievement or or assuming, okay, my practice is really going in a good direction. I've really got it together now. But just here's the cause, here's the effect. Yes, delicious. <laughs> so similarly, the the more wordless and natural that appreciation is, the more that skillfully informs our practice and points out what a, a good direction it, you know, uh, points out what a, a good direction is rather than I'm really getting somewhere I, you know I'm, I'm really achieving things and and again having self-view grasp hold of success just as it, it grasps hold of failure but the the more that the heart can be freed of that and just seeing this is the cause this is the result very nice delightful okay remember that let that in and um, the the, uh, the lack of complication helps that lesson to be genuinely learned so that then 
in that little statement of Lumpur's, the reason we don't let go is because we're not seeing the pain of attachment. And there's a lot within that. <laughs> and the more that that can really be, um, say, recognized, then it's a, a very a very helpful and uh, um, beneficial guiding principle for practice. That's the end of that chapter. Any thoughts, reflections, comments? Yes, yes. Go ahead, you put your hands up first. Um, I don't, I'm wondering how much value there is in, in practice with, say, desire, to, to play around with the object of the desire. Because yet removing the object of the desire can frustrate the desire, thus bring it to your attention, but just removing the object is not solution in itself, as long as I have the arm, it will pick up a beautiful cup, and mm -hmm. if I remove all the cups in the world, it will pick up <laughs> something, else, something yeah. else. And so I often have the question, and I know someone who is uh, um, denying herself all the favorite food because she can see the greed, so okay, I won't have any cake anymore, and then, but then something, it's something else, so, and then now she's down to playing vegetables <laughs> and fruit. <laughs> and is that is that a way of seeing desire clearly and actually getting rid of it? <laughs> like getting rid of the of the possible objects of desire. Well, yeah, the the the, uh, the suffering is caused by the desire, not by the objects. So, uh, and but it it works differently for different people in in, in the detail of it. Um, so wise reflection can be very helpful, so that um, uh, so to 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 walk yourself through that, so that if there's something that you you desire, like cake, and you say uh, uh, that the um, you know, the mind is is wanting a cake, and then just to think that through and say okay, and and if and if that cake is eaten, then I will be happy. If that cake enters enters my mouth and I chew it and swallow it then happiness is the guaranteed result. If you sort of walk slowly through it, usually you can't kind of get to the end of the sentence before it falls to pieces. Like, well, no, you won't be happy forever. Um, it's rather like a conjuring trick. It, desire works as long as you can't quite see what the conjurer's hands are doing. The, ma you know, the magician, you know. If, you, if you're not able to see what the magician's hands are doing, the, the trick works. If you see, if you slow it all down and see what the hands are doing, then the trick doesn't work. So sometimes to 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 think it through, and to to see what the the mind, uh, how the mind is moving, it just then to 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 sort of in a way catch the desire and replay it slowly, replay it in slow motion. Say yes, and if I had that, then I would be happy, and you know change the the language around that. Much cleverer than that. <laughs> Having that cake won't make you happy. You're fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you can just have the cake. With full awareness, it won't make you happy. <laughs> that's the, the, the know, blue pill. Muddled, um, <laughs> it's not always so clear cut. No? Well, you have to see what, what works. It's, I mean, that's like the, the blue pill of the Matrix. If you've seen that, that movie, and I think they're sitting in the restaurant, and the guy says, I know this steak is not real. <laughs> But it's it certainly tastes uh, very very good. 
I forget the exact words, but it's, they're, they're sort of, they know this is, this, we know this is a fabricated illusion, but in that moment, that, that the taste of that thing is, is, is worth it. So that's, in a way, that's why this statement of Lumpo Charles is so, is so helpful. One of the approaches he took was to the, um, the, um, uh, the other day I was quoting that the opening words from Twelfth Night, the Shakespeare play, if music be the food of love, play on, so that so feeding the appetite may sicken and so die. So Lumpur Char did that occasionally with food. He was very f- food obsessive as a young monk. And uh, he was, um, so he, in uh, one time in the, in the mango season, um, you probably heard these stories before, that he uh, he he saw his mind getting getting excited, going out on arms round. Oh, how, how many mangoes? Oh, the mangoes are looking really good. This is right in the middle of the mango season. I wonder how many I'll get today. So then he said, "Oh, mangoes! You want mangoes? Okay, I'll give you mangoes." So he uh, uh, he made a point of collecting as many mangoes as he could, and having his having his whole bowl full and his whole lid, and he ate thirty-seven mangoes. So, okay, you want mangoes? Mangoes are going to make you happy? Okay, have another one. And so he said, oh, no, not another one. Yes, yeah, you wanted mangoes. Mangoes are going to make you happy. Another one, go on, keep going, keep going, keep going. So he would have that sort of satiation, the appetite. Surfeiting means having too much. So he would, in a sense, give the desire mind what it wanted. But then having got, but often the case is when you get what you want, you don't really want it anymore. As a, as a, a Hollywood song. When you get what you want, you don't want it anymore. Similarly, when it was, there's a particular festival in the northeast of Thailand where they make these um, these sweets made out of, uh, of a kind of gluten, kind of chewy sweets wrapped up in banana leaf, a little, like a little pyramidal, like a, like a little pyramid. And uh, he was getting excited about the idea of, oh, it's that festival day, you know, there'll be lots of those, those sweets. And I think he ate something like 84 of them. Again, he said, you want, you want sweets? Okay. You know. you, and then, you know, after about 30, he said, oh, that's enough, that's enough. I keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. So he was just like, uh, to, in a sense, defuse that, de- or re- reveal the lie of desire by giving it more than what it wanted, but more than what it wanted. And so it was revealing that it's not... The, it's not the cake, it's not the sweet, it's the mind that is the, the, um, the, the, the root of it. So that um, the, uh, I think it's important to, to experiment with the, in the meditation and see what, um, uh, what works. I think um, the, um, the use of the Dutanga practices that we have is to sort of limit things to kind of sharpen that and to see how the mind can get really um, you know, sort of uh, uh, charged up about particular sense objects. Uh, but uh, the, um, I, th- I feel it's important to experiment and just to see what works in a meditation and what actually uh, in a sense, defuses that desire uh, dynamic, even for a moment, where the we you know, say that you're you're using that uh, kind of eating too much of the thing that you you're, that you're desiring, or that you are um, you're thinking it through and say, oh yeah, that will make you happy, and then and then and then and then, and then at a certain moment, 
the, the mind says, oh, shut up, you're, you're ruining the whole thing. Ah, right, that's it, that's the moment. You, in that, and even if it's just there, the, you know, the legal team has collapsed at that point. You know, they're, they're, the, uh, their, their flawless presentation in the courtroom has, has reached a hiccup. It's like, ah, there is a smoking gun. <laughs> so that, that moment where, it's, uh, where the, the, it's in a way the wisdom faculty sort of breaks through the, the, the fog of delusion and, it's, and it recognizes that you're spoiling the whole thing. It's like you're ruining the trick. Like calling out from the from the from the the stalls what the conjurer is doing. It's like it's in his pocket. It's in his pocket. And that uh, you you ru- it ruin the wisdom ruins the trick. And though and so even if that's just there for a moment, then that it's like the light coming on and you can see and then it, the light goes off and it's dark again. So that then you're able to recognize, oh right, this is actually, it's a very convincing illusion, but it is just an illusion, like in the Matrix, it's like, for some some people, it's, it's uh, they're okay with the blue pill, and the, the effect that that has, and and for some of uh, the others, no, I just, I, I'm not going to go with that, it's not real, it's just, it, it doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't really satisfy. I don't know if that, that, is a helpful response, but uh, it's uh, different things work for different people, and that uh, the sort of trying out different approaches, and that uh, oh, yeah, and also within the monastery we had the the precepts create a very uh, very sort of safe environment. It's a very um, skillful uh, the. Um, laboratory, right? or a skillful uh, environment for for um, you know looking at uh, these the way the mind works because it that's a, the real the great protector, so, you know, keeping the the sealer, so that there is um, there, there's there's room to to so investigate and explore, but uh, as a, within the bounds of the precepts, then it's it's always going to be something that's that's wholesome or at least benign and harmless. Well, I was going to go on to the chapter on Westerners, Gumpur teaching Westerners. So maybe um, uh, I will start this one. It starts off with a little bit of a historical narrative, so I'll just read that and um, uh, introduce the um, the whole area of Lumpur teaching the the non-Thai Sangha. So this is called From Distant Lands, and there's a group photograph from about 1975 with the uh, uh, Lumpur Pasano in the front row Lumpur Sameto, skinny skinny guy at the back there so from distant lands introduction Farang From the mid-14th century until its sack by the Burmese in 1767, Ayutthaya was the capital of the Thai nation. Established on an island in the Chao Phraya River, it was ideally situated to act as an entrepot port at the time when land routes were safer than sea and merchants in the Orient sought to avoid sending their goods through the Straits of Malacca. Within 200 years, Ayutthaya had become one of the most cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan cities in Asia. Its population of approximately a million people exceeded that of London. 
Some 500 temples, many with pagodas covered in gold leaf, lent the city a magical, heaven-like aura that dazzled visitors from other lands. By the mid-17th century, with communities of traders from France, Holland, Portugal and England housed outside the city wall, the inhabitants of Ayutthaya had become accustomed to Westerners or Farangs. The kings of Ayutthaya often employed foreign mercenaries as bodyguards. To the Thais, these strange white beings seemed to resemble a species of ogre. Hairy, ill-smelling, quarrelsome and coarse. Lovers of meat and strong spirits, but possessors of admirable technical skills, particularly in the arts of war. The ogres had a religion. Priests and monks accompanied them, but it did not appeal to the Thais, who were content with their own traditions. As Buddhists, they were accustomed to equating spirituality with the renunciation of sensual pleasures. They found the Western clergy worldly and hypocritical, undignified in their rivalries. Like, right, I mean, like competing with each other and um, uh, uh, the, um, say, the different forms of Christianity um, as sort of sparring and, and contending against each other. The Ayutian Thais gently rebuffed what they saw as an alien faith with politeness and smiles. However, the legendary Siamese tolerance was stretched to the limit during the reign of King Narai, that's 1656-88, when a charismatic Greek adventurer, Constantine uh, Paulcon, rose to become the closest advisor to the king, who appointed him a Mahatai. Minister for Trade and Foreign Affairs, second in power and influence only to the king himself. After his conversion to Catholicism, it's alleged that Polcon became involved with the French in plots to put a Christian prince on the throne and thus win the whole country for God and Louis XIV. At King Narai's death in 1688, however, conservative forces prevailed, French hopes were dashed, and Polcon was executed. For the next 150 years, the Siamese looked on Westerners with fear, aversion and suspicion. But as French and British power and prestige spread throughout the region in the 19th century, the image of the Westerner changed. He came to represent authority and modernity, the new world order that had to be accommodated. As all the rest of the region fell into European hands, Siam's independence became increasingly fragile. So the British in Burma and India the French in uh, um, Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia, uh, what's called Indochina. As all the rest of the region fell into European hands, Siam's independence became increasingly fragile. King Mongkut, 1851-68, believed that the only way for a small country to survive in the colonial era was by earning the respect of the Western powers through becoming more like them. To that end, he began to reverse policies of previous monarchs and cultivated friendships with Western scholars and missionaries. He introduced Western styles of dress and uniform. He predicted eclipses by, by scientific means, undermining the hitherto unshakable prestige of the astrologers. He also sought to reform popular Buddhism along more rational, scientific lines to protect it from the missionaries' disdain. After King Mongkut's death, his son, King Chulalongkorn, 1868 to 1910, carried on his father's policies and sought to, to create a modern, centralised state and administration, relying heavily on Western expertise. Members of the royal family and aristocracy were sent to study in the West, particularly to England. The policy was successful. 
Siam preserved its independence. At the end of the 19th century, however, the French humiliated the Thais by annexing their eastern territories. That's like the, uh, the Isan. To many, uh, this confirmed the West's unquestionable superiority in all things worldly. There's a, a, a striking photograph of King Chulalongkorn and I think 14 or 15 of his sons all in their Eton College uniforms with their top hats and tail coats. Which are, uh, there's largely still the school uniform at Eton College. You know? So uh, it's um, uh, very, very, very definitely westernised. By the time Lung Po reached manhood, the wealthy Thai elite had become enamoured with the material symbols of Western culture. Expensive imported clothes, motor vehicles, gadgets and foods were the sought-after status symbols. The absolute monarchy was overthrown in 1932 in favour of a Western-style democracy that was soon displaced by a more potent import, military dictatorship. Fascism was the new vogue, far more appealing to the military men running the country than the messiness of political debate. The country's name was changed to Thailand. Chauvinism was promoted in the guise of patriotism. Cultural mandates accompanied political change. Field Marshal Pibun Songkran passed laws making it compulsory for men to wear hats and kiss their wives on the cheek before leaving for work in the morning. <laughs> I didn't know that. <clears throat> a marginalisation of Buddhist goals and ideals, coinciding with official support for Buddhist forms and rituals, became a feature of development that was to become an enduring trait. In the hamlets of Ubon, images of the West came from Hollywood. Travelling movie companies set up their screens and loudspeakers in village monasteries where Clark Gable and Greta Garbo enchanted their audiences in homely Lao, dubbed live in front of the screen. So that was, the, that was quite, a, quite a, an amazing and wonderful um, tradition. So sometimes the actual plot of the movie was completely different um, to what was intended in the original English. That the, the Lao version was uh, a, like a sort of... A, Guesswork and riffing on on uh, on themes, and often I'm sure it was you know very funny and charming, but uh, often not what Greta Garbo and Clark Gable were uh, uh, supposed to be saying. Thus, the first flesh and blood glimpse of Farang in Ubon, exciting though it was, came as a shock. During the Second World War, while the newly ordained Longpoor was studying in local village monasteries a group of gaunt and ragged prisoners of war was jailed in the centre of town. They were the prisoners of the local Japanese garrison, hostages against Allied bombing raids. The local people smuggled them bananas. Then in the 1960s came the Vietnam War. Ubon, closer to Hanoi than to Bangkok, attained a strategic importance. By the end of the decade, 20,000 young Americans were stationed on a sprawling airbase north of the town. Large, uniformed men, black, brown and white, strode along the streets hand-in-hand with mini-skirted prostitutes. They caroused in tacky nightclubs with names like Playboy and sought to escape the stress of their lives with Buddha sticks, the ganja. Overhead, at regular intervals, came the deafening sound of phantom fighters and A-130 airships taking off on missions over Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam. American military personnel were not, however, the only young Westerners in Thailand at that time. It was during this period that villagers working in the fields to the east of Wat Lopong became used to a strange new sight. Tall, 
fair-skinned young men with scruffy hair and dressed in t-shirts and faded blue jeans would often be seen walking along the ox track with a dogged loping stride and with a large grubby backpack like a malignant growth behind them. These young men were the first trickles of the steady stream of Westerners who were finding their way to Lumpur Char. They were to become the senior members of a Western Sangha which now, more than 40 years later, numbers almost 200 monks and nuns. So that's the beginning of the story. <laughs> I was indeed one of those t-shirt wearing, um, ragged jean, faded blue jean wearing uh, scruffy people. I didn't, I, I didn't actually come uh, by foot. Um, I uh, was extremely poor and I uh, was uh, hitchhiking through a lot of Southeast Asia. But in northeast Thailand, hitchhiking was something that was obviously um, un unheard of or unknown. So I'd, I'd gone up to Ubon to get away from the, the beach scene and to try and immerse myself in Thai culture. And um, so I was told there was, there was no, uh, in Ubon province, there was no tourism. Nobody spoke any English. Um, there were no mountains, no beaches. So I thought, great. <laughs> And the, the people are the salt of the earth. They're the most wonderful, kind, uh, friendly people. So I'd gone up to Ubon just to sort of see what I would discover. And um, <clears throat> I uh, was told about what Pananachar, so I thought, well, maybe that'd be interesting to be there for a, a few days just to go and see. I didn't like the idea of monasteries, too many rules, and, um, and, uh, <clears throat> but, and I didn't like organized religion. I had a particular objection to, to organized religion. So, but anyway, I, I thought, well, I'll go there for two or three days. And so I, I got the, the local, uh, local bus to Warin, uh, the, which is across the river from Uwan. And then they said, oh, the, what Pananachat was, uh, was a few miles down the, the highway to Sisaket. So I, I, was, uh, I got off the bus in, in Warin and then stood trying to hitchhike and and uh, nobody picked me up and nobody gave me a lift. And I was outside this, this cafe and the people took pity on me and brought me some noodles and a cup of tea. And I was very kind. And uh, nobody spoke any English, so, but they could see I was sort of standing there with my thumb and thought, these farangs are crazy. <laughs> but maybe he wants some noodles. Yeah. So uh, the, um, I was there for about two or three hours without getting a lift and uh, eventually I was as I said I was extremely poor so the idea of, of getting a taxi was completely uh, way beyond my budget um, so but anyway they after after you know two or three hours and the the people who owned the cafe sort of indicated this this taxi and kind of pointed to me and pointed to the taxi and and, um, and I said no 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 but they they knew where I was going because I could say you know what what uh, what banana chart well uh, and so they, they knew I was heading there. And as it, as it turned out, uh, I, I, I stopped. I, I couldn't argue with them. I couldn't speak any Thai. And I thought, oh, what the hell? You know, it's half my budget. <laughs> it's going to go in this taxi ride. But then the, the taxi driver gave me a free ride, which they, they don't even give free lift. You know, even, even monks have to pay tax for taxis in, uh, in Thailand. But as we were driving along, he, he went... With like making scissoring motions with his hair, and I said, "No, no, 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 no." <laughs> so he was all smiles, and uh, and so he gave me a free lift to the monastery. I had a free cab ride, so I didn't come walking across the fields with my backpack as a 
a malignant growth. But I did have a scruffy backpack, and and uh, the T-shirt I had was so ragged that when I I became an anagarika, and and generally what you did was you gave your the, your your clothes to the to the you, you went into to white. You give your clothes to the the villagers, um, and. Uh, the, the, my T-shirt was so ragged that even the the villagers of Bungwai didn't want my T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Had too many holes in it, and it was kind of kind of a, a ragged mess. So they said, "No, that one we can use for wiping the feet with." <laughs> so I'll leave it there for today.